Hi, this is Russ Boswell on Talking Blues. Um, Russ, my first question. Your dad owned a music store. Yes. I'm wondering, I would imagine that had a major impact on you becoming a musician, but tell me about what influence that music store, Quartet Music Center in Brampton would have had on you. I think any kid that can see a possibility can be inspired by it. So knowing that it was possible to become a musician really helps. I didn't start till later in life. I started at about 17 years old is when I actually started playing music. I was I always had a good ear. I could I could fake my way through piano lessons. Uh, I never really took it seriously until I was about 17. But I think the impression of seeing musicians and seeing that it is a possibility makes it makes it a possibility in your life to become a musician. When did you start taking piano lessons? Just as a kid, like anybody else would, Lila Fletcher. Uh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't take it seriously. I had a good ear. I I understood music, but I didn't actually start studying it or playing until I was sixteen or seventeen years old. And when? How did that happen? What 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 kind of connection did you make at that point? Uh, so in my dad's music store, uh, somebody came in. His name is Ken Meyer. He's a bass player and a and a teacher. I was working at my dad's music store and Ken came in and told me about Humber College and uh, just the possibility that you could study music at school tweaked my interest. Uh, and I followed up with that. I, I, started to, I started to realize that, wow, I could, maybe I could actually do this. I can play music and learn how to make a living at it, uh, although I just didn't know how to play at that point. So that was the thing I had to get together was to learn how to play wow that i mean that's pretty late not not it that is. late but i mean yeah. it's not like you've been playing all your life and then you thought okay after playing the bass for 10 years i can go to humber like it's it's that's like humber's only a couple of years away i presume from the moment you started taking music seriously yes yeah, so i was i was very new at it so i contacted the bass instructor at humber college his name was lenny boyd great guy a great teacher uh, so lucky I got a chance, so lucky that he was there. And I just, I went for a lesson. I told him I wanted to learn how to play the bass, and he told me where F was, and and uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a bass player joke in there somewhere. Where, uh, so. um, why the bass? Because I, I presume working at a music store, you had all these instruments around you, yeah. and you could have picked anything. Why the bass? You know, it's where I hear the music. I hear low when I play piano. I don't want. I don't hit, hit the high register. I just hear music down there, which I've realized after the fact. But it does coincide with how I process music, how I hear it, where I want to play it. I don't want to play high notes. I don't want to play anything up. I, I feel <laughs> the bottom. Um, I presume music was still in your life, even though you weren't playing it. What kind of music were you listening to? in your teenage years? Uh, what was I listening to? I would have been listening, uh, I mean, for sure, the Beatles and the Monkees. Uh, I got into David Bowie, Alice Cooper, Lou Reed, um, Roxy Music, sort of that, that glam era of, of 70s music, New Wave. 
uh, and when I started playing, then I, I was introduced to jazz and and uh, other elements that really opened my ears. So at 16 or 17, you, decide, you, you meet somebody who says, hey, you could become a musician. Yes. Um, and then I guess you start practicing and practicing and thinking, I'm going to, to get into Helmburg, I have to be at Absolutely. a certain level. Absolutely. What are you learning at that point? Are you, are you basically learning, what kind of bass playing are you learning at that point? I'm learning how to read. I'm learning music theory. This is all through Lenny. And I did take a pre-theory course at Humber College. So that would have been, the month would have been July, I, I think, June or July. And uh, I just I just really hunkered down and wanted to learn how to, how to read, how to, well, originally just how to read, where the notes were, how do you play this thing, which Lenny was beautifully organized at, you'd walk in and to teach you sight reading he would put a chart in front of you and that that was that was the beginning of the lesson and you'd, you'd start reading it as as you learned where the notes were and he would he would always have another sheet with just a little a little trip up in it like a little eighth note rest and you'd have to read it when you're learning how to sight read once you've looked at it two or three times you're not reading anymore you're memorizing it so that ability to look at a piece of music and read it right away was a skill that I got started with Lenny. Uh, and after my first lesson, I called him a couple of days later and said I needed another one. Uh, he asked me if I was having trouble, but I was just too inspired. I really wanted to, I really wanted to go. So, so he he knew that I was serious. And I guess about ten months later, I auditioned for Humber. And luckily, Lenny was the guy that was, <laughs> that was auditioning me, and he knew how serious I was. I really had no business going to Humber College with my level of playing at that time. I was definitely the weakest link, uh, but he knew I was really dead serious about it and that I'd work hard, which I did. So he, he got me into Humber College after I'd been playing bass for 10 months. Uh, so the, yeah, and then by the time I went to Humber, it would have been a year and a couple of months by the time I actually showed up and got my career started. That's amazing. Like yeah. it's, that's almost crazy. So what, when you're learning, what are you learning? What, what kind of bass lines are you learning? Is it classical? Is it jazz? Is it rock? It, it's just at that point, it's just written out bass lines. So you, you're, you can read a boogie bass line and a walking bass line. I don't know how to create it at that point. But then uh, Lenny would eventually show you how to start walking through chord changes, let's say, how to lead up to the next chord, little little things that just you, ha you have to start at, you have to start somewhere. And there wasn't the access like we, we'd have now. You'd have if you're listening to a record, you have to put put it back and listen and, and put the needle back. So it was a bit cumbersome that way. But I, I bought books, Carol Kay books. She was the bass player in Pet Sounds and uh, right. great studio bass player with the Wrecking Crew and a good educator. She had really great books so I could read all that stuff and I could play the funky bass lines. I didn't necessarily know how to invent those funky bass lines, but I could emulate them when they were on the page. And when I got to Humber College was the time I realized that I don't actually know anything. <laughs> but I, are you playing at all with anybody else at this point? Is it all bass? You're playing 
your bass playing is based on notes on a page. You're not yeah. really jamming with other people. I, I I did try to jam a little bit. And what was with, that with like? people? As well, it's it's a learning curve. You get your ass kicked, uh, <laughs> but you're young and and you know you're, you're trying to figure stuff out and and uh, trying to walk through changes at an early stage. So you know musicians are generally pretty pretty gracious with stuff like that. And hopefully, hopefully we still are with young players trying to trying to get their chops together. Uh, so a lot of people were were good with me, you know, and and uh, yeah, most of it was just work at home, practicing with a metronome, looking at notes on the page. Um, what was your first bass, based on the fact that your dad owned a music store? It was a Precision Fender nice. Precision. Still have it. <laughs> Whoa, I've man. almost I've only got a couple of more payments and it's, it's paid off. <laughs> um, I find that fascinating that you would start so late. And then at that point, when you spoke to this person and thought, OK, I could go to school and become a musician. Did you have in mind what that would be like? Did you have an idea of what being a musician would be like? From the well, bands I saw, for sure. Okay. I mean, I was very, I used to see bands all the time and I'd sneak into the Gasworks when I was, not sneak in, but I'd get in and, and uh, when I was 16 or 17 years old and just saw these great rock bands, just totally inspired by them. So the when Ken came into the store and sort of mentioned Humber College, he, he wasn't telling me, I just heard it in passing, observing from the sidelines. It just clicked. Wow, I can do this. These guys are having fun up there, and I want to go up there and have some fun too. When you went to the Gasworks or wherever, were you watching the bass players at that point? Yes, I was. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, yeah. so you go into Humber, and what is it, a two, three-year program? It's a three-year program, yeah. And by the end of the third year, do you know what you're, do you know that you're a musician and this is what you will do? Yeah, I was I was working like by the time I, I actually only did about two and a half years and I, I got a gig on the road and, and uh, went from there. But at that point, uh, within my first year there, there was a little, you know, those cards like band auditioning for bass players for a wedding band uh, with those little thing. You tear off the number and you phone. So, and I auditioned for that, which that would have been. That would have, I think that was at the beginning of the year, maybe in a February of, of, if I started in September, I auditioned for this band. It was called the Barry Stein Orchestra, and uh, Barry was big on the on the wedding scene, on the Jewish wedding scene. So I auditioned and I got the gig, uh, and and I started actually making money, which was just a miracle. <laughs> he asked, me, he said, "Do you have your calendar there?" And I'm like. Uh, sure, I've got my calendar. I don't. I don't have a calendar. <laughs> and he started giving me these dates, which was just: Are you available April seventh? Okay, April seventh. Uh, April ninth. Yeah. April twelfth in the afternoon and the evening. Yeah. April. It was just unbelievable how much work was happening. You know, fantastic. Learned a bunch of tunes and and learned how to just learn how to fit in and be a bass player. Uh, at what point? How how quickly do you? Are you comfortable with the concept of sight reading and executing reading sheet music? I'm, I'm comfortable with it. it no, but I mean, I, 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 oh, when, you, when you were starting, 
Like, how long did it take for you to get to the point where you could just get a sheet of paper, they put it down in front of you, and you just execute it? Well, that was the first skill I learned. So I, I've always been comfortable with that because that's what I learned from day one. Uh, uh, other other players who learn how to play, and then try to and then learn how to sight read. Uh, it, I think that there's a there's a a lot of people will say they can't sight read. There, there's a stigma attached to it, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people are actually good readers, but they won't kind of admit it. And I think there was one line that uh, it might have been Ken Meyer actually. He said, "No, it was, it was another teacher at Humber that." Uh, that said, never say that you can't sight read because you don't want to make yourself out to be a liar and you'll never learn how to sight read. So stop saying I can't sight read and just do it and just go forward and just be a good sight reader. But as far as I'm concerned, that was one of the first skills I've learned. So I was always comfortable with going into a situation where I had to read. It never bothered me. I mean, what a, what a great, you know, right now I'm in the process of... Um working in with the Toronto Summer Music Festival and yeah. shooting a lot of classical music concerts. And it always amazes me when I look at classical musicians, and I know they rehearse these pieces, but the the ability they have to sight read is unbelievable to me. And, and just That's a whole other they, level for sure. Yeah, yeah, but so the the opposite, because I've talked to a number of classical musicians who who can't improvise at all. Right. Um, at what point did you feel comfortable with the art of improvisation or what at what point did that become a necessity to you being a musician? Uh, well, as far as me finally being comfortable with it, that happened a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> uh, it's about time. It's, it's about time. It's, it's an essential part of being a musician is, is just being able to hear what the other what the other musicians are playing. And to come up with some parts, and that was that was my big hurdle when I got to Humber College. I understood theory. I was ahead of the game on theory. I was ahead of the game on being able to read, but I couldn't play a Beatles song. I couldn't walk. I couldn't look at uh, at a lead sheet and create music out of it. I could play the I could play the notes, but as far as when it's time for a bass solo. Or trading fours with the drummer, I, I just didn't know what was happening. So how do you learn that? How does that happen? Uh, hmm. <laughs> well, you pay attention. You can't be afraid to make a fool of yourself. You just gotta you just gotta go in there and keep coming back, which is what I did in my first year at Humber. I would go listen to other guys that were jamming. These are musicians I still work with today. I, I still see these guys, but right. I would think, how, how are they doing that? Like they're playing for 20 minutes looking at one piece of music. What's going on there? <laughs> and they're looking at a lead sheet of a, of a jazz tune or, or a song from the American Songbook. And they're, they're playing the head and then they're soloing on it, trading fours. You just, it's just a skill that you have to learn. And then you have to, but then also you have to be able to make music with that. And it's a long curve. I mean, there's endless, endless times in any musician's life where they just think, well, I don't know anything. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing. When, when you've been playing for 10, 20, 30 years and you think, man, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. I don't know anything. It's, it's beautiful because it means you're going to learn it. 
you got to see that as, a, as an inspiration rather than a defeat. Have you ever been defeated? Well, in my first week at Humber College, I have this vivid memory of me sitting in a parking lot with my head in my hands just thinking, oh, oh what have I done? I don't know anything I can't play. Like really just, just, you know, just a pool of, of uh, self-pity. <laughs> uh, and, and there was another bass player there. I can't remember his name, but he just sort of came over and said, hey, how's it going? Like knowing that I was bummed out and, and we just had a chat and, and there have been a number of, there are little inspirational moments that, um, that happen. Uh, this this friend of mine, uh, Steve Hunter, who's a really great piano player. I've known him forever. He was always very good, and he was at Humber College. And uh, I was, I guess I was having one of these bummed out moments, and he just said, man, like, you don't know how much you've improved just in the last three months. You, you, you don't see it, but I see it. And by next year, like, you, you, you're just, he was a very inspiring little chat. So there's some great colleagues along the way as well as teachers that will just give you the odd little nudge that means something and you just keep going. I mean, being a musician is not an easy job. And yeah, yeah, it is. It's pretty easy. I'm oh, no, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> and, and to feel that discouraged at that stage before you're actually out there. Yeah. You know, I mean, but good for you for overcoming that. It's an, it has to, these has to have to be inspirational moments. I mean, if you're defeated, it's it's not for everybody. Like like you say, it's not an easy job, and things like that. If you're not really cut out for it, it's it's a terrible job. But if it's the only thing, if you have to do it, then it's the best. It's the easiest and best job you could ever do. If you have an option, you should take it. If you have an option to be a chemist or something else, you should take it. If you don't have any other options, I never considered anything else uh, other than being a musician. It never entered my mind to quit or to go do something else. I have no other life skills. I know how to play the bass. <laughs> That's the end of my, uh, the beginning and the end of what I've always wanted to do. So I've never, in my mind, I never had an option to quit. So when when you said, this is what I'm going to do, and then by the time you left Humber and you were, I guess, touring with a band or playing with a band, yeah. is that what you had imagined your goal to be, is being in a band? Um, hmm. or was I mean, obviously you went on to do a lot of recordings. What was the idea yeah. to be in recording albums? Right. Or did you have goals? <laughs> yes, I, I, I okay. I'm, I'm just trying to sort of remember. There are different stages of this. At the time, I just wanted to be a good freelance musician. I didn't have any any glory dreams. I just thought I'm, I, I like this idea of of being a studio musician and working in town and making a living as a musician. Um, there's a great. Uh, there's a great Ian Thomas or Mark Jordan joke where where they say, I got into this business to get laid and I'm not leaving until I do. <laughs> but it's been an arc for me. So at, 
at Humber, I just wanted to learn my skills so I could make music. When I got out of Humber, I had another epiphany that I still don't know anything, even though I had skills that take me that have actually been essential to me being able to make a living, knowing how to read, knowing how to play a cha-cha, knowing how to play lounge music or jazz or play by ear, all those skills enable you to get through some lean times. There's no magic bullet for making a living. You take all these skills and you put it together and from one, if you can sight read, it means you have access to theater work. If you can play upright bass and electric bass, you have access to those extra jobs in theater work. If you can fake a tune, or if you know country tunes, or if you can fake a rock tune, or if you can sing, all those things just factor into being able to have access to more work. So when I left Humber with all the skills that I had, uh, I again had another epiphany that I don't know anything. I, I, I would go out and see blues bands and realize I don't know. I, I don't know what a, a Chicago shuffle versus a Texas shuffle or the bass line to this, this blues tune. So, so I started learning those type of things. But the goal was to be a freelancer. Like it wasn't, gee, I want to join a band. No, at, at the time it was, but okay. it evolved after that. So uh, at Humber, certainly to be a freelancer. And then as I started working, I was in the show bands. I was playing in lounge bands. And I had the house gig at the Inn in the Park with a great band leader named Johnny Linden. He was he was a uh, just a really solid figure on the Toronto music scene. A great taskmaster. He, he didn't allow any... You don't walk to the stage at nine o'clock. You're on the stage, ready to play at nine o'clock. You don't you don't goof around. You, you know it was it was very he was very um, strict in that way, which is great. And I learned a whole bunch of cha-chas. I learned how to just be that. And and there was a moment, another epiphany at, at when I was playing at at the uh, end in the park. Much, it wasn't much music. It was well, music videos started to come out. I forget what was the American one. Uh, not much music. MTV. It might have even been before MTV. Okay. So on our break, I went back to a hotel room, and I saw, I think it was a Duran Duran video, and I thought, what am I doing? I'm in. A, I'm I'm dressed in a suit, playing cha-chas, for wealthy people in a ritzy hotel in the suburbs. What am I doing here? I, and it was a, a turning point. I got to get out of this. I got to learn. I, I want to do that. That was an inspiration for me at that point. I would have been maybe 22 years old, I guess. I'd been making a living. Hallelujah. But it wasn't enough. But uh, I presume a decent living playing with corporate and wedding bands and stuff, right? Like gigging quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, enough, well, enough to pay rent and, and buy a car and make a living. Which is, it's, it's a lot harder to do nowadays. It was never easy, for right. sure. But the infrastructure was there. You just had to be one of the guys to get the gig. Nowadays, it's much more difficult. You have to generate the gig. You have to get your friends out to the gig. You have to invent yourself. So right. it's more creative nowadays than it was back then. But it was easier back then. Um, I, I just wonder about what it was it about that video or that band that you said, that's kind of what I want to do. I think it was the same thing when when Ken Meyer said uh, that you can play bass and you can learn how to play bass at Humber College. 
I I wanted to be in that. It, it inspired me to to be to do that. I thought I'm a young guy. I shouldn't be wasting my time. Not wasting my time, but yeah. I, I I was I was inspired. I, I wanted to be on on a big stage. I wanted to be playing rock music. Uh, so it was it was a turning point. And and when I say turning point, it's just it's just really a psychological thing. You start. I guess there's that old line: the harder I work, the luckier I get. And I started. I just started. I don't know. I don't know what it was. I started believing it. I started believing that I could be that guy. I could. I could be on. I could be in a big band. Why? Well, how come I'm not touring with a big band and out there doing it? I want this. And and once you get the taste of it and you want it, if you're headed towards that direction and the infrastructure's there, which isn't there nowadays, but it was back then, it's the same concept that. It's there. I just have to be the guy to get it. Um, your bass playing at that point would have been quite flexible and quite, um, I mean, doing a lot of different genres. Yeah. Did you think I could be a good rock bass player? Yeah. Did you play enough rock that it, it, was, it wasn't going to be a problem? Well, I had, I had chops. Uh, I, I mean, technique. I, I had good technique. I, I could play... I could play any sort of fast passage. I didn't really know how to improvise, but I, I could certainly, certainly had the strength. Um, so it wasn't really, can I play rock? I, I assumed that I could play rock for sure. So what did you do? How did you move forward from that point? This is, this is what I'm trying to, str I'm struggling thinking what the turning point was <laughs> other than just me believing that I was that guy. I, it sounds, I don't know if that makes sense, but if you but, can okay. picture yourself in a situation, like if you can picture yourself the CEO of a company, you could probably be a CEO of a company. I couldn't picture myself being a CEO, but I can picture myself being on a big stage in a stadium playing in a rock band. And that's, that, was, that, that was the beginning of me heading towards that goal. That's impressive. I mean, that's they always say visualize, focus. Whatever, yeah, I guess right? that's it. I, yeah. I visualize it. Okay, thanks. Um, okay, so then what happened? Because <laughs> did you start doing recording sessions at that point, or no, no, uh, I didn't have any studio chops there. I I, I got a gig with uh, there's a French singer named Diane Tell, Diane Tell, and uh, very big fantastic singer great songwriter like the the i don't i really understand the lyrics but she's the Joni mitchell of uh of quebec and, and they came to toronto at, to audition musicians they went to new york and they came to toronto to audition bass players and drummers and guitar players so i auditioned and got the gig the link from the time I thought I want to do this, I can do this, to the time that I auditioned for Dantel's band, I'm not sure what I did in that time, other than visualize it or believe it, or whatever other new age thing I can come up with. It just <laughs> happened. I got the audition, and I got the gig. And this was that was 1982. So so we we toured Quebec for six months. Uh, these are big big halls. You know, she'd play for anywhere from 3,000 to 10,000 people. Wow. Uh, the following year, I auditioned for the Parachute Club and uh, played with them for a year. 
and then uh, when I went, I had a I I had a twenty minute in nineteen eighty four. I had a twenty minute gig in Montreal with a friend of mine. Uh, he, he was promoting his band. Uh, Carlos Lopez was promoting his band to uh, get gigs. It was called the Coca Convention. I guess they they would book college gigs. It's an instrumental jazz band. Can you go to Montreal and play for twenty minutes? Uh, there's no money, but we'll have some fun. <laughs> so I thought, okay, sounds good. I'm in. <laughs> so I drove to Montreal. We did our, our convention. And as it turned out, uh, Corey Hart needed a bass player. And I knew the guys in the band. They said, Russ is in town. Why don't, why don't, why don't you hear Russ? Why don't we bring him out? Went out, played with Corey. He, he liked what I did. And I got the gig. So I went to Montreal for 20 minutes and ended up staying for two weeks. Uh, we rehearsed the show. I went back to Toronto quickly to get a change of clothes. And then we went on tour with April Wine. We were opening for April Wine. Our first gig was in Newfoundland. So we hopped in a van and drove to St. John's, Newfoundland and started touring with Corey. So am I correct to assume that whatever you visualized that you wanted to do watching that Duran Duran video you've kind of achieved when you yes. joined this band yes yes that's pretty impressive I mean I, I, there's there's so many things so far in your life that you you start late and you say I want to be a bassist and right. then you're in Humber like two years later and then you're playing in wedding bands two years later and yeah. then you're saying I want to be a in a rock band, and then a couple of years later, you're in a rock band touring yeah. the country. Yeah. Once you got that opportunity, and I don't know where it was, where the band was at that point, but is it what you had imagined or had hoped it would be when you were touring across Canada in a rock everything. band? It was everything I imagined. It was perfect. I was, I was in my 20s touring in a rock band across Canada, and Corey was certainly on the rise. Uh, that was 84, so that was just as Sunglasses came out. Um, I think it came out earlier. It, it had gone up and down the Canadian charts. I think it made it to 14 in Canada. And then they picked it up in the States, and it shot to number 7, I think, on Billboard. And then it shot back up the Canadian charts. So all that was happening while we were we were touring. So the excitement and the the buzz around Corey was undeniable. We were all, and we were all a part of it, which was just fantastic. Uh, we jumped from the April, opening up for April Wine. We then went to the States and opened up for Rick Springfield. And then we got on the Hall and Oates tour. Wow. So in, in that time, from a 20-minute gig in Montreal, the following year, we ended up touring Canada with... April Wine, America with Rick Springfield, and then America again with Hall and Oates. Very exciting, really fun, great bunch of guys. Uh, and to get, I, I, you've mentioned how do you how do you make the leap to become a recording musician? And at this point, um, this is what happened at the end of that tour. Obviously, Corey Corey's record was huge. And he was about to make another record, and he said to his A and R guys, "I want to, I want to get the guys in the band on this record." 
you can imagine what the conversation would have been like behind the scenes. Like, <laughs> why do you want to get these guys? We could have anybody. You could get Will Lee on bass. You could get Steve Jordan on. You can have anybody you want. Uh, so he he went to bat for us, which I thought was great, and it was a real turning point. And as we started pre-production, this is this is the big time now. We're we're, we're recording at Le Studio, and it worked out. You know the the parts I came up with the parts that everybody came up with, our ability to hear his songs and go, what about this? What about that? A lot of ideas being tossed around. And it worked. And that, so that album was Boy in the Box with Never Surrender on it. And that would have been the beginning of another phase where I realized I can actually do this. I can, I can come up with bass parts. I can record. And again, maybe with the visual thing, I don't know. But it became a possibility. And up, up until you get those positive reinforcements, not unlike a conversation at a water fountain at Humber College, or you cut to a couple of years later when you're doing pre-production with some of the biggest producers in Europe. And when it works out, you got that confirmation. You think to yourself, I can actually do this. And that, that ushers in a new, a new phase of... Uh, a new possibility, you know. I, I get that, but I don't know how, because I get the impression that a lot of projects, recording projects, are are driven by producers. So, unless you make connections with those people, like if the producer for the Corey Hart album says, "Man, that's yeah. a great bass player. I want to use him again," um, I don't know how else you, you say you get your name out there to become a recording musician. Well, that's absolutely that? it. Is is a producer will say, "I like what this guy did. Let's uh, let's get him." Uh, your colleagues, your your fellow musicians, will say, "I just I just recorded with with this guy. You should call him." It's it's word of mouth between other musicians and producers who definitely hear your name, you know, and they want to get you on the on their sessions. And there's there's another old joke in there of the uh, lifespan of a musician, which is, who's Russ Boswell? Get me Russ Boswell. Get me a young Russ Boswell. And then who's Russ Boswell? <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that one. I have. <laughs> we laugh and we laugh. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you have a favorite thing? Like, you've done so many things, and I want to talk about your experience in the, the musical theater, but you've done a lot. You, you, you decide that you play live you'd be doing some rock i know you do a lot of jazz um, yeah you record do you have one thing or is it just that fact that you have this variety that that you enjoy so much i love the variety um i love interaction with musicians when it's all working when everybody's firing on all cylinders it doesn't matter if you're in a small little club or if you're on a big stage that feeling is what I think it's what keeps a lot of musicians coming back for more. And the audience knows it. They know when you're going through the motions. They know if it's good. But they really know when musicians are communicating. They can tell and we can tell. And the only that's the only place you can get that feeling is when it's happening live with the band, either in the studio or in any kind of a venue. I play once a month at this... Uh, at this little bar in the beach in Toronto called Castro's. I'm there once a month with the 501 East Band. And it's some of the best music. Uh, 
some of the best music I've, I've played. The musicians are fantastic. The audience comes in to listen. It's fantastic. 40 people in a little bar three minutes from my house. Yeah, there's certainly no glory in it. There's not a whole bunch of money in it, but it's all fair. It all feels fair, and it's legitimate music. Any musician that walked in to hear that band would would think, yeah, this is good. This is happening. Not not that it's anything that anybody else can't do, but there's true communication between musicians. It's honest music. Not virtuoso music, just honest, good playing and good music. How does that happen? Is it because you guys have been playing a while or is it because the chemistry is right and it could have happened the first time you guys got together? All of the above. It's, it'll happen with strangers. I've done gigs where I've showed up and nobody said a word about what kind of music we're playing or anything. It was fantastic. You just show up and they start playing music. No charts, no discussion, no keys. Do you know this song? Do you know that song? Just start playing music. And those have been some, some of my my uh, favorite situations. Um, I want to talk about music theater. At what point did you decide you wanted to try your hand at performing in musical theater and playing in shows like Tommy and Hairspray and Hair? Like, what decided to, to do that? That was in the 90s. So I'd finished my touring stage. Uh, I have a couple of great kids and I wanted to be in Toronto. I didn't really want to be on the road and miss them growing up. And it also coincided with a recession. My kids were born right in the beginning of that recession back in uh, 1990. So I had to, I had to learn how to, not learn how to, but I, I had to figure out how to make a living in Toronto. I'd been making my living by touring and by recording and doing the odd gig in Toronto, but I, I'd sort of been away from the scene for a while. And what was happening then were corporate gigs and music and theater. So I, uh, I guess I put same thing. I sort of put my energy towards learning how to play the upright bass again. I, I, I learned it at Humber, but I didn't really play it at all through the 80s and into the 90s. So I dusted that thing off and started to try to get my chops on that, knowing that it would increase my odds of getting theater work, which it does. And I know the players. I know a lot of the players that were in the theater. And you just get it out there. You don't you don't call people and say, I want to be hired. You just you just just start putting energy towards it. So learning I had this I had the reading skills. I just I also needed to know how to play upright bass to increase my chances of, of getting work. So when I the, the first one I did was Tommy, which didn't need any uh, didn't need any upright bass. And I had subbed in most of my theater work has been as a sub, which I kind of like. I like being under that kind of pressure where you've got to, you're on the spot. You've got to, you have to use all your skills and read and stuff. It's it's a good, it's a good way to hone your skills. So you don't get a chance to rehearse with the orchestra. No, not when you're subbing in. 
You show up, you audit the show, you sit beside the guy, you make all the notes, you pretend like you're playing the bass, you take it home. It's easier now with being able to take a video home with the conductor than it was uh, when I started, which was you're literally looking at the conductor. Now you're looking at a screen, which presents its own set of problems. But um, that was, yeah, you don't, you don't get to rehearse. You just show up and you hope that it all goes well. And for the most part, it went, yeah, it worked out. And I ended up subbing in on a lot of that stuff. I've had two theater gigs where I've been the principal player. One was Hair, when the, the, the relaunch of Hair back in 2006. And I was uh, hired to play with Sting when he did his last ship. I was the main guy in that, but that was only a six-week uh, six run. I haven't been on any extended runs where you're there for years on end, other than subbing in. But even six weeks is a long time to be doing, yeah. what, seven shows, eight shows a week? Eight shows a week, yeah. How different is that playing versus being in your corporate or wedding band where you're reading charts? Reading charts at the theater, you mean? Yeah. Oh, uh, it, it's a it's a different you, you find a different place uh, you a lot of people would think that it would get boring that you're just playing the same notes over and over but you start to hear other things in the music and you get deeper into the groove and you know every little thing that every musician is doing the length that the mandolin player holds that note and when he has a sub you go oh you held that note a little longer than the other guy it's <laughs> it's just everything is hyper focused and it's it's a great I mean, it's really great when when you when you're in a good band like uh, the guys that the musicians that come from away. They're just everybody's so so great, you know. You're everybody's firing on all cylinders. You have to use all your skills, your ears, your reading, the logistics of uh, switching between the electric bass and the acoustic bass. There's one cue where. The, the guy I was subbing for, uh, John Maharaj, he would write on the chart, this is what you have to do. You have to put the pick in your mouth, uh, throw the electric, set up the next chart, put your pick in your mouth, throw your bass over your shoulder, walk back to the upright bass, which is about 10 feet behind the music stand, play that cue. As you're walking back towards, towards the thing, switch the bass in front of you, take the pick out of your mouth and play the next cue. And you've got about eight bars to, to make the switch. <laughs> so things like that go beyond the skills of a musician. And that's where you can really fall fl uh, flat on your face in the theater if you don't know how to pick this bass up in time, get to the other one. And guitar players, I mean, forget it. They've got so much, and drummers, they have so much, uh, so many things to remember and it's crucial. Some drummers have cues that will trigger a vocal patch on stage. And if they hit the wrong drum, they've got the wrong vocals coming out. It's, it's mind boggling how much coordination happens behind the scenes in today's theater. I can imagine. Um, do you still do theater work? Uh, I haven't done anything since the pandemic or the great pause as maybe it's easier to say nowadays, but, uh, you know, if it, if it comes up, I'll do it for sure. I, I like it. Uh, yeah, if I get called, I'll, I'll certainly take it into consideration and go do it. I, I wonder, that experience in Montreal of taking a 20-minute non-paying gig 
which ultimately changed your life. Um, and, and who knows, something like that could have happened anyways, because you never know. But so many people I've interviewed have done something that was totally unplanned and right. it led to something huge and life-changing and that uh-huh. that's happened i mean i've heard stories like that over and over again but the fact that you did that gig and that got you into ultimately the cory hart band that got you ultimately into recording studios and doing a lot of recordings do you approach things differently because of opportunities like that i don't know How's I mean, I, <laughs> no, I, I just wonder. I, 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 uh, say that again. Sorry. Say, I, say I just wonder if if you approach doing something that might seem meaningless at the time differently, because who knows what opportunities might come out of that? Oh uh, no, I don't think so. I, I I think what drives a musician is just to to get that feeling of playing music. And then obviously there's, you know, you have to make a living. So when you see an opportunity, you got to, you got to pounce on it and all the other things, all the peripheral things around being a musician, like, are you easy to get along with? You know, if you're in a van traveling or if you're in a tour bus, you can't hide who you are. You're going to come out like by Wednesday, everybody's (laughs) going to know who everybody is. You can't hide. And that's a big part of it too. Are you, are you able to just hang out and be cool when it's time to be cool? Or are you difficult to get along with? Are you do you panic? Do you complain? So much of that comes in. And and uh, so no, if if I get if I get a, a gig that I think well it's not much money, it's not much fun. I'm not thinking, but maybe it'll turn into something else. Not not so much. It, it's it's more. Let's go have fun. The money might not be good, but they're going to be great players. It's going to be fun. There was one example of, uh, I did this little gig years ago. Uh, <clears throat> I sort of thought, well, I guess it was, it, it was very bad money and it was in a little, a little restaurant playing jazz. And I thought, oh, it'll give me a chance to, to, I haven't played jazz in a while, so I'm, I'm going to go. And while I was there, a friend of mine, came down uh, Mary Margaret O'Hara came down with a friend of hers who owns Roots the clothing store Roots and and he sort of said to me you know we're looking for to put some music in in our Roots stores on Saturday afternoon do you want to put a little duo together so I called a, a friend of mine Carlos Lopez a really great guitar player and we had a repertoire already and we started playing in Roots stores on uh, on Saturday afternoons and we were there for two years we just played the we got we got paid and we got and we got roots gift certificates so all of our family members had were well <laughs> well appointed in roots gear so that was based on a poor paying gig that i i did just because i wanted to play um and that turned into that something else you know it turned into a, a two year gig at roots and i have the leather, the leather jackets to prove it um, jazz. Does the yeah. jazz that you play come from Humber, or where does that come from? The uh, skill or the 
knowing how to play jazz came from Humber, knowing what to play on what chords, learning how to walk through uh, changes came from Humber. Uh, but there, wa there was also another turning point, maybe, maybe 20 years ago when I, I heard this great quote from, I think it was Lester Young. He stopped playing a solo. Somebody asked him why he stopped. He said, I forgot the lyrics. So he's soloing, he's playing a sax solo on a tune and he's hearing the lyrics and, uh, real jazz players. And I would not call myself a real jazz player. I play jazz. I love playing jazz with singers, but to be a jazz musician is another thing altogether. And I would never pretend to be a jazz player. I like playing jazz music and I, I like it best when I can interact with a singer. Uh, but that quote from, I think it was Lester Young made me, I think oh, I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn these lyrics. I'm going to learn these songs. And once you learn the lyric to a jazz song, you're going to know it. You're going to know how to play bass on it. You're going to understand better how to improvise on it because you're hearing it. You're not learning it from a written page. You're not reading the chords out of a fake book. You're listening to the guys and, and the, the women and men who created this music and you're internalizing it by learning the lyrics. You're totally internalizing the intent of the great American songbook and what those fabulous musicians turned it into. And for me, that was a, that was a point where there was a turning point in my ability to improvise and to play jazz, to get away from any kind of written music. If I can, it's a necessary evil. You have to show up. If you don't know the songs, you're going to read music. But if I have any way to memorize, to memorize songs, I'll do it. I'll do it while I'm driving. I'll listen to the lyrics. I'll learn. The I know the lyrics to many songs, not that I would ever sing them, but it's a good way to learn music. Just learn the lyrics, learn the words, learn it from the recording, ignore the paper, get the paper out of the way. It's, it's an impedance in certain situations. Is it, is it, I mean, I presume playing jazz is challenging. Is it that that challenged? that attracts you to it? Yeah, it's, it's bottomless. It's endless. It's something, it's something every musician seems to go back to. If you've, if you, if you've had a taste of it, if you have a general idea of how it works and if you're inspired by it, whenever you've got a minute, you're going to go back and look at, look at jazz tunes in the American songbook and start digging in and soloing on it. I still jam with friends. I go over to friends' house and we still jam. Bass, piano. But I presume, you know, working on some of the records that you have worked on, and it might not be jazz and it might be somewhat more musically simple, but more commercial. I mean, there's something to that that's also quite a challenge. I would imagine playing on a Serena Ryder album. Yeah. Not that you do jazz riffs, but to do something that's that works for that particular song has yeah. has its own challenges. Big time, big time. Uh, coming up with a bass line, what you're hearing if if somebody's doing a record, let's say, and there's a singer songwriter and they're playing a G chord, and they're singing their song, what are you going to play? You know, they're, they're, if they're if they're strumming away on a G chord and it goes up to a C chord, you got to come up with a bass line that fits in with the the melody, fits in with the vocal. You have to shape it. 
so it's it's really pop bass playing jazz bass playing is a different is a different thing i would think whereas a a, a pop musicians uh, if you listen to i mean paul mccartney's bass lines uh, sting's bass lines any any of those bands it's just mind-boggling like elton john listen to those tracks and how well thought out those parts are they're not just sort of noodling on on the chords they came up with some genius brilliant parts so that's that's something that it's another skill you know some 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 people don't want to do it some people just write out tell me what you want me to play write it out and i'll play it i like the i like to be able to try to come up with interesting parts that make sense with the song that don't draw too much attention to the bass because you've got a singer with a message to give and you can't be in the background saying hey look at me look at me you you got to you have to be able to, <laughs> you have to be able to uh you have to be able to support the lyric and the melody and still do something interesting so so you're making music and if you focus on what the bass player or the drummer or anybody is doing you go yeah that's that's an interesting little piece on its own in that it's a conversation somebody's speaking and you're not talking over them you're not talking while they're talking you're giving them little support along the way you're nodding your head you're going yeah i hear you you're 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 supporting the main speaker music is a conversation that way is there is there a jazz run jazz lick in a song that that you find just amazing no <laughs> okay no, I, if if I think of a lick, then I'm not thinking of music. So if there's a if there's a a, a run, if there, if there's something I practice, let's say it's like, oh yeah, this is this is going to be great. I can play this over that chord. And if I'm playing with people, and I'm waiting to get that lick in there, I'm not listening. Hmm. If the lick comes out naturally because it's embedded in my what I do that's okay but if i'm waiting it's like a conversation if somebody starts talking you may know what the subject matter is but if you're going with a preconceived notion of everything you're going to say you're not actually listening to what's going on right and if you're able to say everything the only reason you were able to get it all out is because everybody else was listening and they were supporting you in being able to say what you want to say so the idea of licks they're great to practice when you're just working at home and then just leave it at home and they'll come out naturally but you can't you can't force it it's a it's a non-starter and maybe i might have misphrased that i mean when i i was thinking of a uh, uh, the bass the bass part in into the mystic by van oh, morrison yeah. Brilliant, whatever reason right? yeah, yeah i just it just i can't imagine it's difficult but there's something about it that just takes me away when every time I hear that. Me too. Me too. And I won't I don't want to play anything different. I'll never be able to play it like that guy played it, which is fine. So I'm going to I'm going to play that baseline and it'll always sound different depending on who's playing. It'll never sound exactly like that guy just like Paul McCartney's bass playing. Brilliant. Again, other brilliant uh bass lines. That's the baseline for that song. That's what that's the difference between a pop mentality and a jazz mentality you know jazz it's it's a big overall beautiful conversation everybody's 
throwing in these great ideas, pop is more like, uh, yeah, it's more like that. It's like, this is the baseline that that guy came up with, or maybe Van Morrison. I, I don't know who came up with it, but that's a great example of a solid pop baseline that you wouldn't want. You, you, you don't want for anything else. Like Ringo's drumming in the Beatles. You don't want anybody else. You just it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. That's what you want to hear. It's perfect. <laughs> I agree. Um, I think I need to wrap this up, but I want to okay. ask you, at this point, I mean, I find your career path and, and the different visualizations and the different aspects of bass playing that you've managed to accomplish pretty inspiring. I mean, I, I think it's... I. You probably don't look at it that way, but you've done a lot of different things. You've recorded a lot of different albums. Um, how, at this point, do you get better as a bassist or as a musician? Um, another turning point is not is really just being honest to what you're hearing at the time and not trying to emulate anybody else. It's something you do when you're younger, for sure. Uh, there's a great Miles Davis moment where he was playing with Dizzy Gillespie and Miles was trying to play up where Dizzy Gillespie plays. And, and uh, Dizzy told Miles, you don't hear the trumpet where I hear the trumpet. You hear the trumpet down here. And, and he played in the low register. Like, you'll never, you'll never play like me, so don't try to play like me. You're hearing, you don't hear it. I hear it. And to learn that lesson when you're 19 or 20 years old, however, however old he was, what a great moment. Like to have a mentor, good old fashioned mentors where they're sitting beside you and they can say, don't do this or why are you doing that? It doesn't happen as much nowadays, but we do have YouTube and we have the ability to gain access to all this great information. Your ears get better. Your chops don't get better, but your ears get better and your ability to get yourself out of the way, to not talk to yourself, to realize that you can't force anything into a conversation, uh, to let somebody else, if, if somebody else has something to say, let them say it, just get out of the way. If, if, if somebody gets busy, don't get busy, you get simple. Yeah, you have to have this sort of give and take. Uh, and to do that, it's really about listening to the players and being honest to yourself of where you hear the music and how you hear the music. If I get called to play in a fusion band and if I try to play like Jaco Pistorius or Stanley Clark, it's not going to work. I don't hear it where those guys hear it. There's, there's a point where I can sort of learn what they do, but at this stage, if I go in there, I don't want to try to play like anybody else. I just want to try to process it how how I want to play it, which may or not be may or may not be right for the gig. And if it's not right for the gig, then they should call somebody else. And that's fine. I, I don't at this point I don't I don't want to play like anybody else. Just want to play how I hear it. So my final question is do you know at what point in your life, in your career, that you knew who Russ Boswell was as a bassist? Did you was there a point where you thought, Oh, this is who I am? It's a constant evolving thing. And this last, this, these last four years, in one sense, I mean, none of us, no musicians have ever gone that long without playing. But there are some positive aspects to it. 
in that you're taking a pause and you, you get to hear music and think about your think about your situation and just have a little reflection rather than constantly because it's a lot of legwork being a musician there's a lot of fancy footwork getting from a to b and taking gigs and if you've got one gig and you're offered a tour and you have to cancel that there's a lot of uh, a lot of delicate and and tricky things that you have to maneuver so there's no one there's no one thing it's constantly evolving and yeah there's no one point there's a bunch of points and if you're in a situation where you feel like you haven't learned anything and I got to do this, I got to do that, it's probably a good thing. The moment you realize you can't play like Jocko or if you're a drummer and you can't do the Purdy Shuffle, the moment you realize you can't do it is probably a really good moment because then that's when you're going to move on and do your own thing. It's all in there. All the music we've heard is in us don't try to emulate it just take it as a part of the conversation and you add your own bit well said um it occurred to me while i was doing research for this interview that you're on many of the albums that i listen to whether it be kevin bright or carlos or serena okay so thank you so much for all the great music that you that i get to listen to hey thanks for having me on your show and i really appreciate you doing this it's, it's me too been, yeah thank you so much. I appreciate it.